From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. When extreme weather hits, you often hear people in the news using terms like natural disaster, as if we have nothing to do with it. But really, there's no such thing, not anymore. All of the weather these days is forming in an atmosphere that humans have warmed on average by about one degree Celsius. It's not that fossil fuel pollution and global warming are causing all of the bad weather, of course, but they do play a role. Throw in a bunch of human decision-making about where we live, what we make our buildings out of, and how we respond to these emergencies, and you can see clearly how the toll of any extreme weather event is anything but natural. We keep breaking records. Um, Some of it's due to better measurements, but not all of it. You know, Irma was the longest-lasting hurricane ever recorded at Cat 5, anywhere in the world, let alone in the Atlantic. Uh, We just see records falling. Harvey, you know, the most rain from any tropical cyclone in the United States. It's getting a little frightening. That's Kerry Emanuel. He's a professor at MIT and one of the world's foremost experts on hurricanes and climate change. Later on in the show, we're going to hear about how the country of Mozambique has been making investments to mitigate the impacts of extreme weather. But first, Professor Emanuel. When I visited him at MIT last fall, we talked about how our understanding of the climate crisis has evolved over the past few decades. So tell me, to start off, you know, you do atmospheric research and and you've made major contributions to the way that we understand how climate change is affecting the weather and extreme weather. What got you into this line of research at the beginning? Well, I was very, very interested for a long time in the physics of tropical phenomena and hurricanes in particular. And I developed sort of a new understanding of how they work that had its roots back in the 50s, but had been sort of cast aside. And a byproduct of that understanding was a theory which tells us just how strong a hurricane could become if conditions were perfectly ideal in a given thermodynamic environment, meaning the temperature of the ocean and the temperature of the atmosphere all the way up to the lower stratosphere. That realization also led me naturally to ask, well, what if the climate were different? How would this limit change? And we did some calculations back in the uh, late 1980s that showed that uh, greenhouse-induced warming and other kinds of warming would actually raise this limit and make more powerful hurricanes possible. And I published a paper on that subject. Can you explain what's happening to the extreme weather, like what the relationship is between what we're doing to the planet, what we're doing to the environment, and these changes that we're seeing? Well, it's difficult to generalize. In other words, you have to be careful to be talking about a particular kind of extreme weather event. But as you warm the climate, the amount of water vapor in the air goes up very fast with temperature. It doubles for every 10 degrees centigrade you warm the air in round numbers. That means that the amount of water going up into a cloud... Uh, There's a lot more water vapor going up, and that means there's going to be a lot more rain coming down. But it's not quite that simple because there's a global constraint on how much rain you can have over a year. So you have what at first seems to be a paradox. This can be broadly translated into a phrase that we like to use, that the rich get richer, the poor get poorer when it comes to rain, Mm. that there'll be both more drought and more floods. Places that are already wet will get wetter. Places that are already dry, deserts, the Middle East, so forth, should get drier. And what about with regards to to hurricanes? So hurricanes is a different problem. 
broadly speaking, when you put more greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, the oceans can lose less heat by radiating it to space. It's trapped. And so for the oceans not to just keep warming up, they have to figure out how to get rid of their heat. And they do that by evaporating water. And so they have to evaporate more water. And that means that something called the evaporative potential has to go up. But it's precisely that evaporative potential that drives hurricanes. And so that maximum wind speed goes up, and uh, also the rain goes up. People have to understand that globally and here in the United States, the big killers in hurricanes are water by far. Much more deaths, much more destruction by water either from flash floods or from a storm surge, which is, is a tsunami, but is driven by hurricane winds. So you have stronger winds, higher sea level, and more rain is a recipe for uh, more flooding and more damage. So we're very worried about all of those aspects of how hurricanes are changing. So you've written that there are no natural disasters anymore. It's basically a term you think we should banish, right? Well, yes. And I would say that I've always felt that way about the term. And it would I'd feel that way even if we didn't have climate change. It's it's a marketing term that lulls people into thinking that it's an act of nature or God or whatever. Nature has been accustomed to floods, hurricanes, wildfires for as long as there's been nature. In fact, in many ways, the ecology has grown up to depend upon these things. Wildfires, for example, clear underbrush and so forth. So when we say a natural disaster, we're talking about a disaster that happens when we move to and build in places that are susceptible to these particular phenomena. And we call them natural disasters. So, yeah, it masks the fact that these disasters to us are disasters of our own making. I think when um, people experience extreme weather events or when they see these things on the news, one of the one of the common questions that I hear, and I'm sure you do too, is like, was that climate change? Or what is the relationship between that thing and the climate crisis, which is, you know, caused by our burning of fossil fuels. How do you answer that question? Well, I try to get them to think about it differently. I think I try to get them to think about the statistics of the phenomena, as boring as that sounds. So most people get it at some level. They say that, that people who smoke a lot more cigarettes are more likely to get cancer hmm. than people who don't. But somebody who never smokes cigarettes can get cancer, and some people who smoke two packs a day don't. So it's a statistical thing. And if uh, I have a relative who smokes a lot or smoked a lot and got cancer and died, uh, nobody would ask, I don't think, you know, which cigarette killed him. It doesn't make sense. You have to look at the statistics. And so I'll tell you what's frustrating about this. If you look around the world at different cultures dealing with different kinds of disasters, there's something that emerges as a common theme. If the event in question, like a small fire or a small hurricane, occurs frequently, you know, every few decades or more frequently, almost by definition, the culture, the society has already adapted to that. If it's something on the other extreme that happens once every 500 years, the cultural memory doesn't last that long, and there's not an adaptation to that. And the sort of switchover point is like around 100 years. Um, maybe three or four human generations. So there's still cultural memory over that. So the problem with climate change is you're taking, in many cases, events that might have been 200-year events and making them 50- or 30-year events. 
so society cannot adapt to that quickly enough. And that's where you start getting an awful lot of damage. And we're seeing that. You know, that's why climate change is causing so much problems because it's shifting over these lines too fast for us to adapt to it. What are some of the other storms that have have stuck with you or that changed your thinking in some way about what's happening on the planet right now? Well, there's a whole string of them. I mean, Katrina was a big wake-up call. And Katrina changed a lot of things in my profession and changed a lot of things in the insurance and also in the American perception of hurricanes. Nobody ever thought that we could lose a 1,000 people in a hurricane anymore. Of course, you know, the worst natural catastrophe in the United States was the Galveston hurricane of 1900. It killed somewhere up to six to 8,000 people. But while they weren't warned, there was no evacuation. They didn't really build for it. All those things are true. We didn't think that could happen again, and it did. So in terms of people like carrying that information into their own lives, is it is it just simply the fact that we're making the weather riskier and more dangerous? Like, what, what do you want the main takeaway to be for people? Well, I like to use an analogy, okay? That everybody has the experience of risk. Now, say you are uh, walking your eight-year-old to the corner to catch her bus, and um, but to catch the bus, which is about to leave, you're a little bit late, she has to run across a busy highway. And if she doesn't do that, you're going to have to take her to school and maybe late for work, okay? That's a very common situation. Supposing um, we had two people advising this parent, and they both agreed that there was a 5% chance that if the girl ran, she'd be run over and killed, okay? And one of them said, hey, there's a 95% chance she'll make it, so let her go, Okay. <laughs> The other one was more reasonable and said, no. What is it that we're, why won't we let her go? Because the cost, even though it's a tiny probability, the cost is completely unacceptable. Now, let me take that situation. And instead of talking about one child right now, I'm going to talk about all the children in the world 50 years from now. We're in the position of the first advisor who say, you know, there's a – actually, it's not 95 percent. It's like a 50 percent chance or a 30 percent chance they'll be fine. So what are we worried about? Mm. It's nuts. If we're worried about our children, we don't take that gamble. And we'll spend money and we'll go out of our way and we'll be late for work to make sure that doesn't happen. Having said that, I don't think the – sacrifices are anything like what some folks advertise them as. You know, people have talked about spending 2 or 3% of GDP on this, and it causes certain people, certain economists... To address the, people, the energy system did, to change yes, the... Yes, for yeah. example, they, they, they say it's totally unacceptable. You know, at the peak of the war effort, World War II, the United States was spending 39% of its GDP wow. to protect its children. We can do 2 or 3%. And if we were ahead of the game in energy innovation by selling carbon-free energy to the rest of the world, we'd actually be ahead economically. This is what people don't get necessarily. I think I like your children analogy. I think sometimes people have a hard time um, thinking about future generations or making decisions now that we know will affect future people. Because, you know, you're saying storms already are worse because of the fossil fuels that we've burned. The more we keep polluting the atmosphere, the greater risk we push 
you know, onto ourselves, but also for many generations to come. How, like, how do you um, reckon with that, the, this issue of time in, in, yeah. in the climate crisis? I think it's, it's the most difficult problem of the whole thing, and it's just the way we're genetically programmed. We're programmed to deal with immediate risks. I have asked many historians over the years, can they identify an action any society took as a society whose beneficiaries were more than two or three generations down the line, which did not benefit themselves directly? And they couldn't come up with an example of that. One generation, yes. That's max, almost. We're just not programmed to think about the future that way. I mean, let them deal with it. If it's going to evolve, the problem is this, this is a diabolical problem because by the time people realize it's happening and they're going to be hurt themselves, although that is beginning to happen now, it's going to be too late to do anything about it. Do you think we're already in that position? We're getting very close to being in that position. In some ways, we are because the weather is worse. Um, the drought, there are you know, worse droughts and so forth, worse heat waves, and that's uh, pretty much irreversible at this point. Uh, the only way we could reverse that level that we've already attained is by figuring out how to extract carbon from the atmosphere in an economical way. We can do it, but we can't do it right now economically. And um, Or to engage in geoengineering, that is to put a Band-Aid on the Earth, if you will, reflect some sunlight back to space and try to cool it down that way. That will be very politically controversial and legally hazardous, but we might be at some point getting to that point as well. Could you talk about the ways in which today's actions matter to that future? Like when you're imagining the Earth in 100, 200, 500 years, like what are the, in terms of extreme weather and, and like hurricanes, for example, like what are the possible scenarios depending on what we do or don't do to, to, to fix, you know, um, the pollution in the atmosphere. Yeah. So we are expecting that by the end of the century, if we don't do anything about it, that in most places, but by no means all, we're going to see more destructive hurricanes, even though the number of weaker storms may actually go down. We're going to see a lot more flooding from hurricanes and other phenomena, a lot, much, much more coastal flooding because of higher sea level and greater storminess. So I think that's the, the best science can do at the moment is to paint a picture like that. It's, uh, it's not foolproof, but it could be even worse than I'm talking about. And if we look at it as a risk, we need to wait the, the, the worse outcomes and thinking about and evaluating the level of that risk. Uh, when an intelligent person says he or she doesn't quote-unquote, believe in climate change or think it's overblown. What they're really expressing is a, a great fear of the solution to the problem. They think that if the problem exists, its solution will entail huge sacrifices. They'll have to give up their cars. They'll have to uh, not have lights on all the time. They'll have to do this and that. And I think they believe that because... There's a lot of propaganda that teaches them to be afraid. In my experience, is once you paint a rosy picture of the, our energy future, you can get people who otherwise wouldn't go near the problem excited about it. 
And I even can tell you, people I know who continue to say to me, I don't really believe what you're saying about climate, but I'm completely on board with the solution. And that's fine with me. It's, it's much more satisfying, of course, if they can say they, 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 <laughs> they've been persuaded by me. But that's not what we have to do. We have to get them interested in the solution. And if the countries and the nations that are first off the block in innovating energy, and that's where I think we have to pin our hopes. We have to really uh, go to town with innovations and in how we do energy, uh, how we might extract carbon from the atmosphere, uh, and paint a rosy picture, which I truly believe is justified about the future, rather than this dread that we're going to have to throw out everything we know and like. That's MIT professor Kerry Emanuel. We turn now to Mozambique. It's a country of about 30 million people located along the eastern coast of sub-Saharan Africa. It's also a place that has been decimated in recent years by powerful storms. In March of 2019, Cyclone Idai hit Baira in central Mozambique, killing nearly 600 people and displacing 130,000. One of the worst death tolls from a storm in the southern hemisphere. Villages disappeared and the flooding destroyed crops before harvest season. A catastrophe for Mozambique, one of the world's poorest countries. Then Cyclone Kenneth hit, destroying 30,000 homes. Mozambicans have been asked to evacuate their homes uh, along the northern coastline. Cyclone Kenneth comes just six weeks after Cyclone Idai caused havoc further south in Mozambique. It was the first time two cyclones had hit that country in the same year. Apart from storms, flooding and coastal erosion have become increasingly worrisome in Mozambique. And this has been happening for more than a decade. Now efforts are underway to fortify the country's infrastructure against extreme weather. Dashan Mudley brings us this story. While sitting outside in the winter sun, Mata Mandlate recalls last year's heavy rains and winds that lashed at her doors. Whenever it rained, the road would get damaged and the soil got muddy. Wearing a checkered coat over her blue dress, she squeezes her hands together firmly. Her village in Chokwe, in southern Mozambique, was not spared disaster. Marta's a farmer who sells her tangerines and sweet potatoes at the market. After the cyclones hit, she was cut off from the outside world. It was very difficult to transport our crops to and from the market. Roads link farmers like Marta to markets. They take workers on site, get students to schools, and transport the sick to hospitals. Pregnant women suffered a lot in the community. Because they did not have road access to hospitals, many women gave birth without medical assistance. On March 14, 2019, Cyclone Idai made landfall in Mozambique. Nearly six weeks later, Cyclone Kenneth hit further north, dumping more rain on the country. Hundreds were killed as swollen rivers broke their banks. Deadly mudslides washed away homes, bridges fell apart, and roads disappeared. It's no exaggeration to say roads are vital to the life of any country. Just like the veins and arteries are essential for a human body, roads are essential for the body of a nation. That's Rakesh Tripathi. He's a senior transport specialist for the World Bank in Maputo. 
He also serves as the chairman of the Transport Donors Coordination Group, which is composed of all the major donors in the transport sector. You want food, medicines, you want to go and repair the schools or provide temporary roofing over people's house. How are you going to go there? You have to take the road. At the World Bank, Rakesh is responsible for distributing funds and sharing technical know-how with Mozambique's National Roads Agency. After the cyclones hit, their teams conducted field visits to assess the overall damage. They found nearly 2,500 miles of unusable roads. That's over 10% of Mozambique's road network. In the places they couldn't reach by road, Rakesh says aerial footage showed the scale of the damage and its consequences. One of the pictures that I saw which made a huge impact on me was this ambulance stuck on a bridge for more than 16, 17 hours. And people on both sides were standing and just watching them and they could not help because the force of water was so much that if you went there to help them, you would be swept out as well. And every time I think about it, I start thinking about those folks inside the the ambulance, what they would be going through for those long hours. Am I going to be swept off? Am I going to die? I mean, I cannot even imagine what would be going through those people's mind. In one of the worst affected places, the country's fourth largest city, Baira, was turned into an inland ocean. 90% of the city was destroyed. Aerial footage showed survivors huddled on rooftops. Rakesh says with so many lives at risk, it's important to jump into action. The first thing that we came up with was a very quick list of uh, repair projects that we could immediately do under expedited emergency procurement procedures, basically direct hiring of the contractor and go and, uh, you know, fix things immediately without a lot of procedural and bureaucratic, you know, processes. We are very happy about the mechanism we have. That's Luis Fernandez. He's part of the emergency cabinet of Mozambique's National Roads Agency. He says when the cyclones hit, the World Bank released funds quickly. First, there's the identification of the damages. That's done together with the people from the World Bank. And immediately when the work starts, the funds are released. So there's no bureaucracy that delays the process. The first $4 million went for quick repairs, like rebuilding the country's major highways. Another $35 million was allocated to help Mozambique's roads withstand the next major climate event. Things like improving drainage, using better materials, or raising the height of roads or bridges. But Rakesh admits that climate-resilient roads and bridges are not a perfect solution. Climate scientists believe less building in coastal areas would be far better. But that said, these roads are doing what they promised. During the rainy season in 2020, the new roads were put to the test. Okay, so the proof is in the pudding, as they say. So, yes, the resilient design is working. 
because it has already gone through one heavy rainy season, which was a little bit unusual. So if it if it did well um, in this heavy rain season, then uh, the the uh, indications are that the the uh, the new standards are uh, indeed uh, providing some degree of resilience. Part of the reason why it works so well is this different approach to road construction. Through their partnership with the World Bank and other institutions, the Roads Agency considered things like which way would the water flow during a flood? So before they had manuals that had nothing to do with the weather situation in Mozambique. A year ago, they got new manuals that are more adapted to the reality in Mozambique. So now we have a manual that is adapted exactly to the characteristics of the soil. So they are taking into account the hydrological situation. Rakesh is quick to point out that this new approach can support Mozambique in the future. They're not just helping with the project, but creating a new national approach for Mozambique towards building roads. There is a normal narrative that uh, in Africa, the local capacity is not that much. But I was pleasantly surprised that the local capacity actually uh, stood up. And the capacity to adapt by the client and the capacity of the uh, contractors actually surprised me. And this is a good surprise, actually. Rakesh says, despite COVID-19, The repairs and the reconstruction were completed at the end of last month. In total, 600 miles of roads were rebuilt or repaired, reconnecting over 2,000 miles of road network. About 1,400 jobs were generated out of this $35 million investment, out of which about 120 jobs were accomplished by women. One of those women is Marta Mandlate's friend in Chokwe. Now that the road is in good condition, we are able to go wherever we want without any problems. We can go to the hospital or to the retail market faster than before, and even two or three times a day. Marta's livelihood has also improved. She's making more money than she ever did before the cyclones. Yes, the business grew a lot because of the road. We were able to quickly go and return from the market very quickly. I think my income multiplied more than 10 times. Yes, it increased a lot because I don't have to travel on boats whenever it rains. And with the money I earn now, I'm able to take my children to school, buy uniforms and books. While Marta talks to us, a group of women walk along the road behind her. Young children are playing as the older kids carry their school bags. Some people even stop to hear what Marta is saying. I am very happy for this road. It changed my life. Now that the roads are secure for years to come, the next big challenge for Mozambique will be to firm up its 1,500-mile shoreline. Roughly three out of every five Mozambicans live near the coast, a place which is increasingly in peril due to climate change and coastal erosion. But now that they know how to partner with global institutions... Mozambique has a blueprint for moving forward with the assistance of the international community. 
For Heat of the Moment, I'm Darshan Mugli. Next time on Heat of the Moment, what if the next big thing in climate change is already here? I was working on capturing CO2 effectively and worked out you could do it more cheaply and easily from conventional sources than people thought. How we can harness existing technologies to make a dent in our carbon output. That's next week on Heat of the Moment. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the climate investment funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.